When January 1st rolls around, it will not only mark an end to the 2010s, but the beginning of legal recreational marijuana in Illinois. It's a move that will not only impact Metro East cities, but also neighboring states like Missouri. So to break this all down, St. Louis Public Radio's Eric Schmidt joins Julie O'Donohue and I to talk about the consequences of legal marijuana in the land of Lincoln. We also talk with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Jack Suntrup about the interplay between Governor Mike Parson and a Maryland Heights-based lead company. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that, that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. Welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, Julie O'Donohue, and Jason Rosenbaum is not with me right now. Uh, He's off reporting on a story, but I do have my colleague Eric Schmidt, our reporter for what we call Metro East. Hello. Uh, Eric, (laughs) hello. I guess I won't speak for Jason, but I don't know a whole lot about what's going on in Illinois politics. And today we brought you in to talk about recreational marijuana. I think something Mm -hmm. that many many people on this side of the river are interested in well many people on that side of the that side of the river too it's <laughs> it's kind of funny whenever i tell people that i cover cannabis sometimes they are a bit i don't know like not enthusiastic about it <laughs> but we have the site metrics to know that these stories get a lot of views and people are really interested in it on both sides a hundred percent I know very little about what's coming. So if you could um, give us some kind of broad brushstrokes about what we should expect come 2020, I would really appreciate that. Sure. So on January 1st, Illinois becomes the 11th state, I believe, to offer recreational marijuana sales in the country. And so what that means is for adults 21 and over, you can go into a store that sell, that is approved to sell, uh, sell recreational marijuana and you can buy it. You can go back to your home and you can consume it. And it that's all legal. You will not be uh, prosecuted for possession or anything like that. It's really meant for this, the state to allow sales like you can buy in Colorado or Washington, California, Massachusetts. There's a lot of like nitty gritty stuff um, Mm -hmm. about that changes and doesn't change in the state. And that's what I've been really, you know, digging into. So let me ask you this. Of our Metro East communities that are closer to us, are is there a difference in how they're handling this Are some of them embracing it? Are other people like, no way, I don't want much to do with this? Most of the communities that have made decisions uh, have allowed sales so that you're looking at like Belleville, Edwardsville, Collinsville was like, yeah, we're going to do this because they already have a medical dispensary there. But some communities are less enthusiastic. O'Fallon does not, will not allow sales on January 1st. Um, They are going to put a referendum to their voters to see if they want uh, to allow sales in the future. 
Um, I know that Highland did allow vote to allow sales, but now the city uh, city residents have come back and said we don't want to be known as a pothead community. Um, and even when you even when I talk to lawmakers, there's a lot of trepidation. I mean, city council members will say, "I'm not particularly for this." But I realize that it is state law and I realize that it's going to be in my community anyway. So why not let us be able to regulate it, get some tax money from it, too? It's a lot of the same things that I saw when I was uh, growing up in Colorado. I was in high school when they voted to um, when the referendum passed in 2012. And when sales first started in 2014, you had people who were like, well, I don't really support this, but it's the state law. And so they kind of just shrugged and moved on. Do you have a sense of whether the retailers, I guess, that are coming online, whether they're expecting a big influx from Missouri? Anecdotally, yes. I think that they are expecting an influx from Missouri just because it won't, it, you won't be able to legally buy it in in Missouri, unless you have a medical card, and even then, the dispensaries and the the infrastructure won't be set up for that. To be clear, it's illegal to bring cannabis across state lines. If you drive from Missouri and purchase it in Illinois and you drive back, that that is technically illegal, and and you could um, face charges for that. But there are there are some things that that make it hard for uh, police to track that kind of thing. I think that. The, the dispensaries are expecting to see Missouri traffic for sure. Uh, and that's just a, a reality of the region. I mean, you're not going to be able to police. Actually, personally, I don't see how you'd be able to police the different bridges that you go across because there's already so much state to state traffic both directions every single day. And like plugging those up would just be a nightmare. The other question I have is, where are they getting the cannabis? This sector of the Illinois agricultural world that is cannabis cultivation is really small. I think that at this point there are like maybe only a handful of cultivators, maybe like a dozen or so. Right. I was um, reluctantly, I, I paused before I used the word farmer because I thought people might be offended if I put, <laughs> but let's be real. I mean, they are growing a crop, so mm-hmm. fair enough. But these facilities are, are, it's not like any farm that, it's not like a traditional farm that you've seen where it's rows and rows and rows of stuff. These are really, really regulated facilities. I went to one a, a few weeks ago and it was like a barbed wire fence around it, you know, specific IDs. They had a lot of stuff on the floor to like catch dust and stuff. Um, the... The cultivators, are they all grow in Illinois. They have a lot of regulations set on them by the Department of Agriculture as to, you know, what kinds of pesticides you can use. And most of them don't. Their facilities are so secure that they don't even need to use. uh, They don't even need to spray for um, bad stuff that could get in. Um, But, yeah, no, the... All of the cannabis is grown in the state, and then it's distributed throughout the state. And that's, again, because it's illegal to take... um, cannabis across state lines because then you're stepping on like the interstate commerce uh, act or that stuff from the federal government. Yeah. So it sounds like I won't be driving along in Illinois and see like a bunch of cannabis instead of corn as I (laughs) make my way down the state road. 
thanks, Eric, for coming in and telling us what's going on in the Metro East. We really hope to have you back, even though this is a show that's mostly focused on Missouri politics. <laughs> I'd love to be back. <laughs> There's a lot of interesting stuff happening in Illinois politics. <laughs> and listeners, you can read Eric's stories on our website at stlpublicradio.org. He, I think, is going to have some new content about cannabis shortly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Take care. So now we're moving on. Jason has magically appeared in the studio. Yes. For, I guess, the second time in three weeks, I was in the news wilderness, this time reporting on the impeachment of the president of the United States right. and how Missouri uh, le- legislators are reacting. But now I'm back to talk about the Affordable Housing Trust Fund in St. Louis County. Yeah. So, Jason, this has been um, several weeks in the making. Why don't you tell us about what the county has approved? So on the last council meeting of the year, the council voted four to three to establish what's known as the Affordable Housing Trust Fund. There's a similar trust fund in the city that's actually been in place for about 20 years. And it's essentially a pot of money that gets divvied out to developers, to nonprofits, and to municipalities or local authorities that are trying to create more affordable housing. Right now, under this bill, it's funded by a percentage of the expected medical marijuana sales tax proceeds, which is about $50,000. It's not a lot of money to, and even the proponents agree that that's not going to be the main source of revenue from this. But a lot of people are excited about this because it sets a foundation for much larger county investment in making sure affordable housing happens in the future. We've seen people for several weeks testifying about this issue. I think there have been a lot of people coming out to county council meetings because they genuinely believe this is the right thing to do. Uh, It's been much more than the normal actors that come and testify at St. Louis County Council meetings. You did see an interesting coalition emerge to support Councilwoman Lisa Clancy's bill. You saw like the Realtors Association team up with the Legal Services of Eastern Missouri. And you also saw groups like Beyond Housing, which creates affordable housing in the Normandy School District, also come out strongly in support. This wasn't a bipartisan vote. The four Democrats on the council voted in favor and the three Republicans voted against it. I still believe this is a big policy shift since St. Louis County has never had something like this before. This was the last county council meeting of the year. It has been a big year for St. Louis County Council. Lots of things have happened in St. Louis County government. I I think that's an understatement. I know you <laughs> I, I know you started at St. Louis Public Radio, I guess, midway through the year. Yes. But I think even before then, you were probably watching what was happening in St. Louis County and probably thinking, what the, what the hell is going on here? I want to say my first day was the day that uh, Sue Stenger got sentenced. I went to the courthouse with you and you were like, tell me when he comes out. And I was like Googling on my phone, like, I need to know what this person looks like. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I often think that Stanger's downfall kind of masks how many other things happen in St. Louis County this year. And I'm, rather than me list, I'm going to actually let Councilman Mark Harder, a Republican from Baldwin, list just a few things that happen in what I believe is the most significant political and policy year in St. Louis County's modern history. 
Throughout the year, we dealt with topics related to animal care and control, charter commission, city-county merger, freeholder process and picking representatives, a new Port Authority Board, which we, which we created and moved on, uh, county real estate assessment forums, Tower T plan withdrawal, uh, loop trolley, Metro and Bi-State security, justice services reorganization, FBI investigations, resignations and hiring of county staff. I just want to point out that I cut that clip early because he goes on for another minute and a half just listing <laughs> how many things happen. They, there are obviously a lot of challenges in 2020, but I think all seven members of the council can probably look back at this year. They probably won't want to do it again, but I think they will come out feeling like they survived and advanced, which you can't say that about every legislative body. And it, it is definitely a thankless job sometimes when, when you think about it. Do you expect in 2020 the council to make a major shift to the left? Because the members have, I think, moved to the left. But the council, there's a little bit of a trailing aspect because council member Trachis is still in charge. That's a great question. I tweeted right before the council meeting was over that this will probably be the last time, maybe in our lifetimes, that a Republican will be in control of the county council. Kind of happened because there were two resignations and it was three to two Republicans versus Democrats. Trachis, who is a Republican from South St. Louis County, stayed as the presiding officer. That's not going to be the case after January 7th. It doesn't make a lot of sense for Republicans to control the council when they don't have a majority. They still play a big role. Like if one Democrat votes no on something, they all become much more important. But I do think that we're going to see um, a new council chairwoman and vice chairwoman, because all four Democrats are, are women. And it'll be interesting to see who gets chosen. I mean, Rochelle Walton Gray is the next in seniority. But if you've read like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's reporting, I don't think that she's a sure thing to become the next chairwoman. It wouldn't shock me if Rita Days, admittingly one of the newer members, maybe gets picked because she has a long tenure in the Missouri House and Senate. She was a chairwoman of a Missouri House committee when the Democrats held the majority. So I think she knows how to like run a seven-person body. And we'll just have to see. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to be talking with St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter Jack Suntrup about a story he wrote last week. And we're back with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch's Jack Suntrup. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Hi. Uh, Hi. Jack's here to talk to us about uh, an article he wrote last week about Governor Parson appealing to have a lawsuit moved to Peru. And I'm going to have him explain a little bit more about why we should care about this. Jack? Basically, the, the company... Um, is the Doe Run Resources Corporation, and it's based in Maryland Heights in St. Louis County. And um, in 1997, uh, at the same time they were operating a lead smelter in Herculaneum in Jefferson County, they bought a smelter in La Arroya, Peru. And um, for the next decade or so, there were a lot of concerns over the 
uh, lead pollution that was occurring in La Arroya. And in 2007, a group of young people from the city uh, sued in St. Louis Circuit Court, um, alleging lead poisoning by the company, and they they wanted damages. So um, the case was transferred to federal court in 2011, and um, in 2018, um, the governor, uh, a month after taking office, wrote a letter to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and asked if the Secretary of State would help um, move the case from federal court in St. Louis to court in Peru. Is there a feeling that the Peruvian courts would be less amenable to this lawsuit than the American courts? I talked to a professor at SLU, uh, Constance Wagner, and she's um, a professor of international law. And um, she said that in general, uh, um, companies see courts in developing or poor countries as more amenable to their interests because there's less of a likelihood that there would be a large judgment against them. So um, so in general, there are those concerns. And then um, there's the concern over the venue, too. I mean, Doe Run says that um, since the pollution occurred in Peru, that the case should be adjudicated in, in Peru. Um, but the, the plaintiffs want the case in, in St. Louis. Um, and the, the professor also said that, that plaintiffs um, representing or attorneys representing um, foreign clients often seek to have the venue in the United States because our judicial system is seen as, as, as better to plaintiffs than in foreign countries. So they were uh, tangling over venue for, for quite a while. And this was the governor's way of trying to get the case moved to Peru. So, uh, Jack, am I am I wrong about this? A lot of international intrigue. Who knew on the Missouri Politics podcast? But uh, didn't he write more than one letter to Secretary Pompeo? The first letter was July third, twenty eighteen. Uh, Parson took office on June first, twenty eighteen, after um, Governor Eric Reitens resigned, and um, Pompeo wrote back to Parson on October thirtieth, twenty eighteen. Um, and he didn't commit to intervening. They said that they were monitoring the case and were meeting with Doe Run officials, but they, they didn't intervene in the case with what's known as a statement of interest. Um, and then on January 30th, Parson filed a letter with the court asking for the, the litigation to be sent to Peru. And then on March 22nd, he wrote a third letter. This appears to be the last letter. Um, and he wrote it to Pompeo again, asking him to intervene. Can you go through some of the campaign finance uh, records in connection to to the company that is trying to get the lawsuit moved? And then okay. the other question I had was, um, wh- wh- do you have any idea why previous governors haven't made this type of request, or even if they considered it? Sure. So, um, like I said, I can't speak to uh, why other governors didn't get involved. Um, As far as the donations go, um, Renco, which is Doe Run's parent company, and that's based in New York, 
uh, donated $25,000 to a political action committee that is in support of Parson in December 2018. And then three days later, Ira Rennert, who controls Renco um, through a series of trusts, a network of trusts, he donated $2,500 directly to Parson's campaign. Um, so this was after the first letter and before the second letter um, that Parson sent. So right in between that. Um, and what I thought was interesting um about the donations was that Renko and Ira Rennert hadn't donated to any state candidates before going as far back as 2003 because that's as far back as the Missouri Ethics Commission allows you to search online. But but they hadn't donated to anyone before. Doe Run has through its PAC and um, other other ways of, of donating. but. But Rinko and, and Rennert had never donated before. But, it, you know, also, too, I mean, this is $27,000 out of, you know, millions that Parson has raised. So it's it's kind of a drop in the bucket. But it was just, it was still interesting that he was um, accepting money from the company at the same time he was sticking up for them. Doe Run, as a company, has been politically active in the legislature for a number of years. I recall back in 2013, there was heavy lobbying to override a piece of legislation that affected that company, and they were able to secure the amount of votes over Governor Jay Nixon's veto with the help of Democrats. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of the intertwining between Doe Run and Missouri's political leadership? Yeah, um, I think their lobbyist is Mike Gibbons, who's the former Senate president, um, and his his um, lobbying firm, um, Gibbons Workman. Um, but you're right, and I, I think what a lot of um, politicians or officials would say is that, that Doe Run contributes a lot to Missouri's economy. Um, the, the stats that the governor's office used was that they um, have a $1 billion economic impact in Missouri every year. They ent- employ 1,200 people. And if this lawsuit were to move forward in St. Louis, that, that a large judgment out of St. Louis would threaten all that. So I think, you know, despite the environmental problems that, that Doe Run has caused over the years, um, a, lot of, a lot of officials look at that and say, well, they also bring a, a lot of economic benefits in a lot of areas of the state that are pretty economically depressed. Um, their, their mining operations are in uh, Reynolds, and they have an operation in Iron County, and those are, those are some of the um, most economically depressed counties in, in, our, in our area, I, I'd say. Is there any main takeaway you want readers or listeners to take away from this story? <laughs> I'd say it's important for my readers and, and our readers to know uh, what goes on uh, behind closed doors because unlike a lot of politically popular things that the governor does, there was never an, a press release issued about this. Um, he, he had sent these letters um behind closed doors and and no one really knew about them until um this year until this article so um i I would just say that 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 people should know you know what's going on and i i think that's the most important part 
All right. Thank you, Jack, for coming on the show. You can read Jack's stories in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or at its website. Um, hopefully we'll have your you back on soon, Jack. Okay, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. For our final segment, which we call Show Me Something, I wanted Jason and I to look back on memorable clips, uh, audio clips from this past year. This is our last weekly news roundup show of the year. We'll be back after January 1st. Although we will have a special show. We will. That I'm not going to talk about, but just be on the lookout for the end of the year. Correct. We will have a special show. I'm not going to say anything more, but continue, Julie. Anyways, I wanted us to look back at things that we really remember from the year in terms of uh, clips and interviews. Um, And I guess, Jason, why don't you go first? I feel a little repetitive because last week I played a clip from Reverend Starsky Wilson about like the greatest speech I've ever heard. And I'm about to play another clip from him. So it may seem to listeners that like I am in awe of Reverend Wilson or I'm too like deferential to him. But there's no denying that when this man speaks, you listen. And in this particular clip that Julie's going to play, I was in the middle of a long ranging interview with him about the now scuttled Better Together plan to merge St. Louis and St. Louis County. And when we got on the subject about how under the Better Together plan, St. Louis County uh, executive leaders, the county executive, the county assessor and the county prosecutor would be the transitional leaders of this new mega government, uh, Reverend Wilson told me this. On the democratic principle um, that this could pass, that there could be elected leadership that people did not actually elect, um, suggests um, that we would be operating at least in a transitional period uh, under apartheid conditions. Um, That a uh, plurality black city that would still be a municipal corporation would be operating with governance that it did not elect, never had an opportunity that to elect it and does not reflect it demographically or politically. Um, that, is an, that is a definition of apartheid. I knew from the moment that Reverend Wilson said that, that the Better Together plan was in serious trouble. Uh, Reverend Wilson, as the former co-chairman of the Ferguson Commission, holds a lot of weight with a lot of policymakers and a lot of activists who look to the Ferguson Commission report as a, as a guiding light in, in policymaking. And after it was revealed that Stanger had been subpoenaed, Better Together changed its plan to no longer make him the mega mayor, as we've talked about. And Nancy Rice of Better Together actually cited those comments as one of the reasonings behind uh, changing course. A lot of people thought it was because, you know, Stanger was in legal trouble and was becoming an albatross around the plan. But I think for people that have paid attention to the city-county merger issue— like, it's not surprising that African-American leaders like Reverend Wilson were alarmed by this because the biggest question has always been about city-county merger is how it's going to affect St. Louis's black population, not only its political leaders, but black people in general. I actually picked a clip that ran on Politically Speaking, at the very least. I don't know if it ran over the air, too. 
before I even took my job. I, I listened to a lot of episodes of the podcast uh, before I, I got here in mid-July. Um, this is Representative Polly Rader talking on the floor of the Missouri House during the debate over the eight-week abortion ban. And this has stuck with me, um, I would say, for several months. At 15, I had to quit school to take care of my family. And at 15, I was pregnant, homeless at times as a child. And at 16, I had my daughter. My mother struggled with mental illness, so she refused to help me. I did it on my own. And by the grace of God, he strengthened me, taught me, and I'm sure I wasn't the best mama. But I learned as I went through it. We made it, and I praise God for what he's done for me and my family. Life begins at conception. Psalms 119 says, your hands made me and formed me. So I think what struck me about this comment is that, you know, I I think sometimes in the abortion debate, and I will say women mostly, kind of divide lines and they tend to think that they don't have much in common. And this demonstrates that sometimes people just see things differently. Um, I, I, I applaud this woman. You know, I, I can't imagine having a kid as a teenager and then growing up to be a state elected official. I mean, that in and of itself is a big deal. Um, but when I was in Louisiana and I was on the floor for this similar debate (laughs) about a slightly different proposal, but basically a similar bill. There was a woman who was a Democrat who got up and said that her mother had been raped when she was 12 and had had her and that her mother never got over it, never uh, had a hard time looking at her. Um, Even when she was a child, because of what had happened to her, she associated for the rest of her life. Uh, her daughter with this traumatic experience. And um, she came down on a very different side of the issue. She she thought that um, there should be exceptions for rape and incest as a result of the experience that her mother went through. So I, I think sometimes we don't think that elected officials understand what people are going through. But I thought this clip demonstrated that that they do. Sometimes we just don't all agree. What I really admired about everybody who spoke on this debate, both the Republican side and the Democratic side mostly, is that I think that they were speaking as real people and not political automatons. And I think we need more of that in Missouri politics. I think there needs to be kind of less talking points and more people speaking from experience and from the experience of their constituents. And my hope is that continues into 2020, but it is an election year, so 
we'll have to see how that goes. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Jason. Uh, I think we're wrapping up. Yes. <laughs> um, we'd like to thank our executive editor, Shula Newman, our political editor, Fred Ehrlich, and our sound engineer, John Larson. Jason, where can people find you over the holidays on the internet? Uh, at Jay Rosenbaum. Okay. And you can find me at J.S. O'Donohue. 